Welcome to Catholic Conversations. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. And today I'm going to be reading to you a uh, sermon from Thomas Aquinas on Christmas. So the um, I'm just going to be reading straight through it and I will link the um, sermon down below. So if you want to follow along, print it out, read it to someone else. Um, but I just want to read it because it's um, very... Um, Wonderful. It was a great sermon, and I'm going to be in a conference for the next week, so I won't be uh, able to record, so I need to record this ahead of time so I don't have anything to prepare. So I figured it'd be great to just get this sermon of Thomas Aquinas and read it to you, and I know everybody will enjoy it. So here you go. Behold, your king comes to you, meek. Many are the wonders of the divine works, as the psalmist says, wonderful are your works. Yet no work of God is as marvelous as the coming of Christ into the flesh, because while in other works God imprinted his likeness on the creature, in the work of the incarnation he impressed his very self and united himself to human nature through a unity of person, or united our nature to himself. And hence, while the other works of God are imperfectly knowable, This work, namely the incarnation, is entirely without reason. Job 5 verse 9, you do great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. There is one work that I cannot see. If he should come to me, I would not see him. And in Malachi, behold, the Lord of hosts comes and who can know the day of his coming? As though to say it exceeds the knowledge of man, but the apostle teaches who would be able to know the the day of his coming, saying not that we are sufficient to think anything of ourselves as of ourselves, but all our sufficiency is from God. Therefore, in the beginning, we will ask the Lord that he himself should give me something to say. The four comings of Christ the King. Behold, your King comes, meek. These words are taken from the gospel, which we read today, and are taken from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Although there it is said in slightly different words, in these words, Christ's coming is clearly prophesied to us. Unless we proceed on the basis of an ambiguity, you should know that Christ's coming is read in four ways. First is that by which he comes into the flesh. His second coming is that by which he comes into the soul. The third coming of Christ is that by which he comes in the death of the just. And the fourth coming of Christ is that by which he comes to judge. First, I say that the coming of Christ is into the flesh and is not to be understood as though he came into the flesh by changing place. Because he says in Jeremiah, I fill heaven and earth. In what way then did he come into the flesh? I say that he came into the flesh, descending from heaven, not by leaving heaven behind, but by assuming human nature. Thus, John says he came unto his own. And how? I say that by I say that he was in the world, but he came in the world when the word became flesh. And see how this coming leads to the other coming of Christ, which is into the soul. It would have profited us nothing if Christ had come into the flesh unless he had also entered into the soul, that is, by sanctifying us. Hence, John says, if anyone love me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and will make our abode with him. In the coming, the son comes alone, but in the second, the son comes with the father to live within the soul. This coming, which is through justifying grace, frees the soul from fault 
though not from all punishment, because it receives grace, although it does not receive yet receive glory. And because of this third coming of Christ is necessary, in which he comes in the death of the saints. When he received these souls unto himself, hence John says, If I should go to the passion and prepare a place for you by removing the obstacle, I shall come to you again, namely in death, and I shall take you to myself, and namely in glory, and where I am you also may be. And again, he says, I came that they may have life, namely my presence in your soul, and have it in abundance, namely through participating in glory. The fourth coming of Christ will be to judge, namely when the Lord will come as judge and the glory of the saints will overflow even into the body and the dead will rise again. Hence, John says, the hour is coming and now is when all who are in the tomb will hear the voice of the son of God and those who did well will enter into the resurrection of life. And perhaps it is because of these four comings that the church celebrates Christ's coming over the four Sundays of Advent. It celebrates the first coming of Christ on this Sunday, and we can see four things in the words set down above. First, the coming of Christ is shown as behold. Second, the condition of the one coming at your king. Third, the purpose of the coming comes to you. Fourth, the mode of the coming at meek. First, I say that we can see that this coming of Christ is shown as behold. We must note that we we normally understand four things by behold. First, showing a thing to be certain, we say behold of things which are evident to us. Second, we understand through behold a determination of time. Third, the manifestation of a thing. And fourth, men's comfort. First, I say that through behold, we normally mean to make a thing certain. When anyone wants to make a thing certain, he says, behold. Hence, the Lord says in Genesis, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and and with your seed after you. I shall set my bow between me and you namely as a sign of peace. This bow signifies the Son of God, for as the bow is generated from the reflection of the sun on the watery clouds, so is Christ generated from the word of God and human nature, which is like the clouds. And as the soul and body are are one man, so God and man are the one Christ. And it is said of Christ that he ascended on a light cloud, that is, on human nature, by uniting it to himself. And Christ came to us as a sign of peace. And it was necessary that he should become such because of how such he would become such because of how some doubt Christ's coming, come, Christ's second coming. Hence, the apostle says, "In the last days there shall come deceitful scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is his promise of his coming?'" Such men will say that the soul will not endure after the body. And because of this, to show the certainty of Christ's coming, the prophet says, Behold, and it says in Habakkuk, the Lord will appear in the end and will not lie. And Isaiah says, The Lord of hosts will come. The second thing we usually understand through behold is a determined time in the coming of Christ to judge. We do not have a determined time. Hence, Job says, I know not how long I shall come and when my maker may take me away. And in Luke, the kingdom of God will will not come with observation. Why was there not a time determined for us for that coming? Perhaps because the Lord wished us to be always watchful. But for the coming of Christ into the flesh, we have a determined time. Hence, Isaiah says, Behold, the days shall come, and I shall raise up to David a just seed, and he shall reign and be wise. The third thing that we normally understand by behold is the manifestation of a, cer- of a thing, a certain coming of God to us in hidden, namely the coming in which he enters into the soul and cannot be known through the showing it to be certain. 
Hence, Job says, if he comes to me, I shall not see him. And if he depart, I shall not understand. But in the coming, which is into the flesh, Christ comes manifest and visible. Hence, Isaiah says, therefore, my people shall understand my name because I am myself who spoke. Behold, I am here. And John points him out saying as though in the present, behold, the lamb of God. But Zacharias showed him through behold in reference to the future. Fourth, by behold, we normally understand men's comfort. And this is two, this in two ways. If a man suffers annoyance from his enemies and his enemies submit to him, he says, behold. Thus, Lamentations 2.16 says, My enemies, knave, open their mouth, and behold, the days come which I have longed. For similarly, when a man obtains some good which he has long desired, he says, behold, as the psalmist says, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to live in unity. We obtain these two in the coming of Christ because of man, because man is freed from the insults of the devil and rejoices in hope obtained. As Isaiah says, say to the faint hearted, take courage and fear not. Behold, your God will bring the revenge of your recompense over your enemies. God himself will come and will save you. Now let us consider the condition of the one coming. A person coming requires that he be expected or announced with solemnity because of the person's greatness. If he is a king or a papal uh, legate or because of friendship and affinity. And this one who comes as a king, our close relation and a friend. Because of this, we must await him with solemnity. You know that a king orders the authority of dominion. Yet not just anyone who has authority of dominion is called a king. But four things are required for someone to be called a king. If anyone is absent, he is not called a king. A king must first have unity, second, fullness of power, third, wide jurisdiction, and fourth, equity of justice. First, I say that a king must have unity because if there are many lords in a kingdom and dominion is not proper to one, we do not say that there is a king. Hence, the kingdom is like a certain monarchy and Christ has unity. Thus, Ezekiel says there will be one king of us all. He says one king to signify that our king will not be a foreigner, nor another lord, but the one lord, son with the father. Thus, Christ says, I and the father are one against Arius, who said that the father and the son are different. As the apostle says, if there are many gods and many lords, we have one God and one Lord. Second, king conveys fullness of power. Whoever reigned without fullness of power, but according to imposed laws, would not be called a king, but counsel or magistrate. Now it was going to be that, that by Christ's coming, the law was changed by God with regard to the ceremonial laws. Thus Christ himself is the one who can establish the law. Hence he says, it was said to the ancients, do not kill. But I say, as though to say, I have power and I can make the laws. Thus Isaiah says, our Lord and our, our Lord, our judge, our lawmaker, he himself shall come and save us. We re read that the father gave all judgment to the son and the son is our lawmaker and consequently our king. Thus Esther says, Lord, all powerful king, all are placed in your power. And thus the son says, all power in heaven and earth is given to me. Third king conveys breadth of jurisdiction. The head of a household has fullness of power in his own home, yet he is not called a king. Similarly, someone who has one estate is not called a king because of this. But he who has dominion over many lands and over a large city is called a king. We see this in he who comes to who came to us, for all creatures are under him, because God is king of all the earth. And it was necessary that the sword of man should come who had such power, because the law once was given only to the Jews, and the Jews were called to the, cho the chosen people of God. 
but all had to be brought to salvation, and hence there had to be a king of all who could save all. Such was the one who came to us. Hence the psalmist says, Ask of me, and I will give you the Gentiles for your inheritance, and the utmost parts of the earth for your possession. Fourth, it is necessary that a king have equity, because otherwise he would be a tyrant. For the tyrant turns everything within the kingdom to his own use, but a king orders his kingdom to the common good. Thus, Proverbs says, a just king sets up the land, a covetous man destroys it. But he came not seeking his own use, but yours, because the son of man did not come to be ministered to, but to minister. And who comes to minister? Surely the one who comes to give his soul for the redemption of many. And so that he might lead the redeemed to eternal glory, to which he to which may he lead us. The love and meekness of Christ the King. Behold, your King comes. It was said that in these words, we could see the, the coming shown when it says, behold, second, the condition of the one coming to your King. Third, the usefulness of the coming at comes to you. And fourth, the manner of the coming at meek. It was also said that through behold, we normally understand four things. First, making a thing certain. Second, the, the determination of a time. And third, the manifestation of a thing. And fourth, comfort. Now we said about the condition of the one coming, which is noted when it says your king, that a person's coming requires that he be expected or announced with solemnity because of his greatness. If he is a king or a legate or because of a person's friendship or and affinity, and these were in he who came. We then must consider that he himself is the king of all creation. Hence, Judith says, creator of the waters and king of all creation. And he is specifically called your king, namely of man because of four things. First, because of the likeness of his image. Second, because of special love. Third, because of special care and solitude. solitude. And fourth, because of the society of human nature. First, I say that Christ is called your king, that is of man, because of the likeness of his image. You know that things are especially said to pertain to a king which bear his insignia, like his image. And while every creature is God's, yet there is a special way in which a creature is God's that bears his image, that is man. Thus, Genesis says, let us make man toward our image and likeness. And what, and what does this likeness consist? I say that it is not according to a bodily likeness, but according to the intelligible light of the mind. Now the fount of intelligible light is in God. We have a sign of this light. Thus, Psalm 4, 7 says, the light of your countenance, O Lord, is signed upon us. Man has a seal of this light, thus the image is, in, is created in man, but it is blackened and obscured through sin. Psalm seventy-one twenty: you will bring their image to nothing. Because of this, God sent his son to reform that image, which was deformed through sin. Therefore, let us strive to be reformed following the apostle who says, putting off the old man and put on the new man who is created after the likeness of God and who is renewed in the image of he who created him. And how are we renewed? Surely in so far as we imitate Christ, for that same image which is deformed in us is perfect in Christ. Therefore, we ought to bear the image of Christ. Hence, the apostle says to the Corinthians, as we have borne the image of the earthly, thus let us bear also the image of the heavenly. And in today's epistle, let us put on Christ. That is, let us imitate Christ. The perfection of Christian life consists in this. The perfection of Christian life consists in this. Second, Christ is called your king. That is of man because of special love. It is the custom in groups of clerics that when a bishop loves certain ones in a more special way than others, that he is called their bishop. God loves all that there is, but he loves men in a special way. Thus, Isaiah says, where is your zeal and your strength, the multitude of your bowels over me? 
observe that God specifically loves human nature. For we find diversive level of nature, but we do not find that God lifts up a lower level of nature to a higher level of nature, such as the level of a star to the level of a sun, or the level of the interior angels to the level of the higher angels, inferior angels, or the level of the inferior angels to the level of the higher angels. But God raised man to the level of and equality with the angels. Hence in Luke, the sons of the resurrection the saints will be equal with the angels. Thus, God especially loves men. Therefore, thus God especially loves men. Therefore, we ought not to be ungrateful for such great love, but we ought to wholly transfer our love to him. If the king should love some poor man, the poor man would consider himself wretched if he should not repay the king his love as much as he could. But out of immense love, God said to man, my delights are to be with the sons of men. Therefore, we ought to return him this love. Third, Christ is called your king, that is of man, because of his singular care and solitude. It is true that God has cared for all has care for all things. Thus wisdom says, the care of all things is in is his. There is no thing so small as to be taken away from the divine providence. For as a thing is from God, so it is so is its order from God. And providence is the same as that order. Yet men are under divine providence in a special way. Thus the psalmist says, men and beasts you will, preserve, you will preserve, O Lord, namely by bodily health. But the children of men will hope in the covenant of the, con, of the co- covert of your wings. And how do they hope? I say that, that not only spiritual goods, but also eternal ones are prepared by God for those he leads to eternal life. And in regard to those in God's care is not for others. And in regards to this, God's care is not for others. Thus, the apostle says, God's care is not for oxen. God does not allow the act of man to be untried. Thus, wisdom says, but you, the master, judge sin with great tranquility. Fourth, Christ is called your king, that is, of man, because of the society of human nature. Thus, Deuteronomy says, you may not make a man of another nation king who is not your brother. And this is a prophecy about Christ. The Lord was ordaining that he should establish the king for men. He did not want that he should be of another nation, that is of a different nature, who would not be our brother. Thus the apostle says of Christ, never does he take hold of the angels, but of the seed of Abraham, in which it appears that man has a privilege over the angel. Christ is the king of angels and is a man, not an angel. The angels serve man. Thus the apostle says, all are ministering angels. All are ministering spirits. Now it was necessary that Christ be man for this, that he might save. For the apostle says to the Hebrews, he who sanctifies and he who is sanctified are one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare my name to my brethren. Now the demonstration of the coming and the condition of the one coming are clear. Next, we should consider the usefulness of the coming, which is noted when he says comes to you, namely not compelled by his own usefulness, but by ours. Now he came because of four things. First, he came to make manifest the divine majesty. Second, to reconcile us to God. And third, to free us from sin. And fourth, to give us eternal life. First, I say that Christ came to manifest to us divine majesty. Man had ardently desired to have knowledge of the truth and the truth principally to be considered is about God. But men were in such ignorance that they did not know God. They did not know what God is. Some were saying that he was a body. Others said that he did not have a care for individuals. And hence the son of God came to teach us the truth. Thus he says, for this was I born and for this I came 
for this I came, I into the world, that I should give testimony to the truth. And in John, no one has seen God. And because of this, the Son of God came so that you might know the truth. Our parents were in such great error that they did not know the divine truth. But we, through the coming of the Son of God, are brought back to the truth of faith. Second, Christ came to reconcile us to God. And we're able to say, God was my enemy because of sin. Therefore, it was better for me to not know than to know him. Because of this, Christ came not only to manifest the divine majesty to us, but to reconcile us to God. Thus, the apostle says to the Ephesians, and coming, he will preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. And elsewhere, the apostle says, we will reconcile to God through the death of his son. And because of this, at the birth of Christ, the angels sang glory to God in the highest. And after the resurrection, the Lord brought peace to the disciples saying, peace to you. Third, he came to free us from the slavery of sin. Thus, the apostle says, Jesus Christ came into the world to have sinners. He who commits sin is a slave of sin. Therefore, he must be freed. It is said, if the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Fourth, Christ came to give us the life of grace in the present and the life of glory in the future. Thus, John says, I came that you might have life, namely the life of grace in the present, since the just man lives from faith and have it in abundance. That is the life of glory in the future through charity. Thus, John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And let us live through good works. Again, in John, this is eternal life, that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, the usefulness of the one coming in, coming is clear. But how did he come? I said that he comes meek. That is important. Thus, in Proverbs, as a roaring of a lion, so also in the anger of a king, and his cheerfulness as a dew upon the grass. Meekness is mitigated wrath. Now, God comes with meekness, but in the future, he will come with wrath. Thus Isaiah says, Behold, the name of the Lord shall come from afar, his wrath like burning fire. And Job, he does not now bring on his fury. And Job, and Job he does not now bring on his fury. Neither does he, re, does he revenge wickedness exceedingly. For now Christ comes with meekness and we ought to receive him with meekness. Thus, blessed James says, With meekness receive the engra- engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Notice that when we consider Christ's meekness in four things, first in his way of life, secondness in his correction, third in his gracious reception of men, and fourth in his passion. First, I say that we can see the meekness of Christ in his way of life, for his entire life was peaceful. He did not seek matters of dispute, but wholly avoided everything which could lead him to quarrel. Thus he said, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and we ought to imitate him in this. Christ ascending to Jerusalem sat upon a donkey, which is a meek animal, not on a horse and which was a son of one under the yoke. Therefore, we ought to be meek. Hence, Sirach says, My son, do your work in meekness, and you shall be beloved above the glory of men. Moreover, the meekness of Christ appeared in his correction. He bore many taunts from his persecutors, and nevertheless, he did not respond to them with wrath or strife. About this, Psalm 44 says, Because of truth and meekness, and expounding this, Augustine says that when Christ spoke, he acknowledged the truth. When he patiently answered his enemies, his meekness was praised. As the psalmist says, meekness has come upon us and we shall be corrected. In Isaiah, he neither contended nor cried out. 
Third, the meekness of Christ appears in the gracious reception of men. Some men do not know to receive others with meekness, but Christ kindly received sinners and even ate with them and admitted them to his banquets or went to their banquets. Thus, the Pharisees were amazed saying, why does your master eat with publicans? Therefore, he was meek. Hence, it can be said about the church in 2 Samuel, your meekness is multiplied, has your meekness multiplied me. Therefore, those who rule over others ought to be meek. Fourth, the meekness of Christ is apparent in his passion because he went like a lamb to the slaughter. And when he was cursed, he did not curse. Nevertheless, he could have handled over everyone to death. Hence, he says in Jeremiah, I am like a lamb that is carried to the sacrifice. St. Andrew imitated his meekness well. For when he was placed on the cross and the people wished him to come down from the cross, urged and begged by prayers that they should not take him down from the cross, but that they themselves might follow him through the passion. Thus it is fulfilled in him. This man appears the most meek among the people. The meek will inherit the blessed land. Thus in Matthew, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, which may he design to grant us with whom the father and the Holy Ghost. Alrighty. I hope you enjoyed that uh, sermon from uh, Thomas Aquinas. Um, but yeah, so let me know what you think. Email me at fonsecaproduction at gmail.com, F-O-N-S-E-C-A production at gmail.com uh, for any questions, comments, or concerns, soapboxes, negativities, positivities. Um, and from now, I will um, tune out and I will hear, talk to y'all next time. Um, and I will try to uh, have a normal episode next time. Uh, let me know if you like this kind of uh, thing. Maybe I can find some other old sermons from church fathers and saints that I can read to y'all. Um, and yeah, and at that, I'll close out with the Hail Mary in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum mulieribus, e benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus, Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in mortis nostri. Amen. Oh, <laughs>